I should really be doing if I'm looking at maybe five or 10 different operators is saying, hey, can you show me the NOI growth of your last five deals? Is that what I should be doing? It should certainly be a part of the conversation. Equity multiple, you can't really play around with, right? If your multiple is a two, that means you put in 100 grand, and you got out 200 grand. As long as you have that and the amount of time it took you to do it, you can't really play around with those numbers. What was the average NOI growth across that those deals? I think that's the piece that you need to look at to say, okay, NOI growth was X and the deal you're looking at today, what's your NOI growth projections? Because it's team and track record, right? They're great people. I wanna know that the people I'm investing with are great humans first, because if you have bad people, it doesn't really matter what you're investing with. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments to help them build their legacy. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner. And today, I'll be interviewing Chris Benson, uh, who's in Roswell, Georgia. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Pascal. How are you today? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to have you on. So I'm going to give a little bit of background on Chris. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Reliant Real Estate Management, an investment firm headquartered in Roswell, Georgia. And their strategy is to invest in value-add storage facilities in Sunbelt states that typically have room for expansion on site. Since founding in September of 2010, uh, more than 12 years ago or 13 years ago at this point, Reliant Real Estate Management has over $1.2 billion in assets under management with over 38 deals having gone full cycle and producing a whopping 33% IRR. Today, if you want to participate in any of their offerings, it requires a minimum check of $50,000 as a new investor. So this is going to be an exciting show for me because uh, I've actually spent a lot of time with Chris. I've personally invested in uh, one of their deals and one of their funds, and I've also, you know, taken the time and flown out to Columbia, South Carolina, a couple weeks ago, where we went and we toured uh, one of their facilities. So I really got an in-depth look at how they run their properties, what they think about, what what metrics they care about, how how professional their employees are, you know, what the the lobby of each one of their storage facilities uh, could look like. And so I'm excited to really dive in here. But to start us off, Chris, what I like to do for our listeners is kind of help position or explain the asset class from the investor point of view. So, you know, if I'm a cash flow investor or a net worth growth investor, you know, those are two different objectives that I might have. How does self-storage fit into the investment landscape of, of goals that I am trying to achieve as an investor? Yeah, I think it's a fair question, Pascal. And, and like many, I'm probably going to give you a terrible answer, which is it depends. I would say for us specifically at Reliant, we are a value-add investor. You, you mentioned it in the intro. Typically, we're buying existing assets and doing something to force appreciation into them. And so we're not a great cash flow play. Most investors invest with us for appreciation. And I would say, you know, we're recording this end of June 2023. Right now, there's better options to go get cash flow, you know, current yield. Our, you mentioned our historical returns also in the intro. You know, I would say 60 to 70% of that is coming at the back end. So 
But that doesn't mean all self-storage is that way. There are certainly some deals out there that guys are doing where there is current yield. I think you just have to find an operator that, that meets with what you're trying to do. How I position us to investors is marginal cash flow, marginal depreciation, historically pretty good appreciation. And so to your point, probably more of a appreciation net worth grow type of opportunity than just a current yield play. Uh, with that being the case, why don't you just withhold all the cash flow? Is there are there better ways that you can utilize that cash or Yeah, I mean not really. So what what happens is we we have a, a 9% preferred return in our our current fund. We're accruing it regardless. So there's not really an advantage for us to hold the cash. Um from an IRR standpoint, it probably hurts us. Just if you think about how IRR is calculated, if you held all the cash till the end, you know, not having distributions through the hold period is going to lower your IRR. So I, I'm open to that feedback, Pascal, if you think there's a, something we should be thinking about. But, but overall, probably not. You know, there's, there's not something right now that it makes sense to hang on to that cash, you know, till the completion of the project. Totally. So there, there's a, a note that I want to highlight here for our listeners, which is... You mentioned that the preferred return accrues. Mm -hmm. uh, let's dive into that real quick and, and help explain that to, to those who are listening. So, you know, when you look at these different types of deals, some, you know, a lot of investors, if they're unsophisticated or, or new to this, to no fault of their own, right? They, they see, oh man, this deal is going to produce this kind of return and it has, you know, a 9% preference in, in your case. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get 9% every year. And in your case, they accrue. So, so how does that work in your model? Can you dive into that? Yeah. So I think probably a good place to start is where what a preferred return is. And ostensibly, a preferred return means that you as the investor are receiving all the cash flow other than cash flow that we withhold for you know, reserves, those types of things. But ostensibly, we do not get to share in the profits from the deal until you receive a 9% annualized return for each year we've held your money. So Pascal, let's just throw a quick example out there, right? So let's say it's a three-year, I'm making this up, but a three-year hold and you have your capital with us, we owe you 9% for each year. So nine times three is 27%. Well, let's say that the property, I just told you that we're not a great cash flow play. So let's say the first year we pay out 3% annualized return. Well, you get 3%, you put that in your pocket, but you're earning 9%. So you don't lose the other six. It just carries over or accrues to the following year. So the next year, we owe you 15, right? 9% plus the six from the last year. So now you got 15%. And that 15% essentially you know, we'll pay out whatever we can in year two, let's say it's 5%. Well, you don't lose the difference, the 10, it just carries over again. And upon a capital event, in our model, at least, and, and you as investors should dig into this with the sponsor of how it works. But in our world, in a capital event, we have to first return 100% of your principal. And a capital event just means a refinance or a sale. We return 100% of the principal, we catch up your preferred return, whatever we owe you, in the example that you and I are just talking about, right? I still owe you basically 19% in year three. So we pay that out. And then any remaining profits, then they usually get split on a waterfall. And each, you know, each sponsor has their own different waterfall structure. But I think the key thing to understand is 
as an investor, you want to ensure that you get your principal and your pref before the sponsor gets to share in the profits. You want to make sure your incentives are aligned where we don't get to take a share of the profits until you get your, I'm using air quotes for those of you guys just listening, but your guaranteed money. Nothing is guaranteed, but what we are saying is yours in the first place. So I think it's a good structure to align incentives, but certainly, you know, you got to understand deal by deal how these mechanics work. It's a critical component to understanding, you know, how our incentives as a sponsor align with yours. And and how do you think about fees related to that? So you you just mentioned you want to have your incentives aligned with your with you as an investor want to have your incentives aligned with the operator. And sure. that's by having them pay you out first. I would say a caveat to that are fees. And now like, mm-hmm. you know, as someone that's maybe new to this or they're, they're investing in one of these types of deals, you know, I hear a lot of investors scoff at, oh man, they're, they're charging all these fees. And, and now having been on both sides of the table, I understand that there are some dynamics at play where you would want the operator to kind of collect their fees. How do you look at that and the types of fees that Reliant takes in? Yeah, I, you don't want us to get rich off of fees is the answer. I, I mean, fees are a necessary evil to have a team to execute on the strategy, right? Fees for us are just covering overhead. So, you know, there's, there's salary in there, team members. And, you know, if you don't have fees, there's no dollars until the end of the deal for the sponsor, which makes it really hard to run a business, right? There's, there's no revenue stream. So, you know, for example, property management fee, well, if you're not taking that property management fee, somebody is, right? You, you have to go out to market to get it. And so I think the key thing about fees, Pascal, we actually wrote an article about this. You should have, you want to pay fees and you just want to understand, are they market? Are they market relative to other opportunities? And are people trying to take advantage of how that fee structure works? And this is where there's not, there's not a great absolute answer for each fee. I think you have to, you know, look, at an acquisition fee, right? I think one to three percent is probably somewhere in market, right? You know, asset management fee, half to one and a half somewhere is market, right? And each deal has its own unique structure. And real estate is different than venture capital. Like each investment sleeve also has a different fee structure. So I think it's just taking a having a balance. But again, I, I really harp on incentives, right? Incentives drive behavior and you want your our incentive as a sponsor, you want us to get rich when you get rich. That's that's the biggest thing is yes, you're gonna pay fees along the way, but you want us to make our money when you make your money. And so I think it's just understanding the mechanics of the deal to make sure that, that those incentives are aligned. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, that's a great recap. So. Now I kind of want to make a transition to the asset class. Let's talk about how how has self-storage performed over the last several decades, maybe even just the last decade, and how do you expect that to move moving forward? Yeah, so I'm I'm a data guy, Pascal. And if you or your listeners have not ever explored the National Association of REIT data, NAREIT, N-A-R-E-I-T, it's, it's a pretty impressive database. It essentially tracks all of the publicly traded REITs across all markets. So if there is a real estate investment trust that is publicly traded, NAREIT tracks it. And they have data from at least in self-storage since 1994, which I think is when the first publicly traded REIT came about. 
So there's 28 years of storage data there. And if you need it, Pascal, I can certainly send you the link to, to put into the show notes. But it's really interesting to see different asset classes, apples to apples, how they've done over the years and, and along different economic cycles. So you asked the question about storage. Self-storage has done very well historically. So in the last 28 years, it's done just under 19% a year, which is incredible. And it's outperformed multifamily apartments, office, retail, certainly the S&P 500. Just a quick aside, and for the people who are listening to this podcast, they probably already know. But if you had invested basically at the 1994, taking 100 grand and 1994, taking 100 grand and put it in the stock market and the other put 100 in the self-storage REIT world. As of 2022, you had almost 10x dollars if you just simply compounded those returns year over year. So stock market did just under 9%, I think. Storage did 19. It's almost a 10x difference. So there is huge value in these alternatives. And you know, historically, storage has done well. I think the second part that I look at is everything is cyclical, right? You're going to have ups and you're going to have downs. And so I want to understand how the asset class is done in a down market. And storage has done really well, at least in the last two major economic cycles, right? So GFC, 2007, 89, storage lost less than 4% of its value, outperformed all other major asset classes. And then 2020 and 2021 for us, Pascal was probably one of the best years in the history of the asset class. And I think the why behind that, the recession resilience is demand for storage is driven by transition in people's lives. You've heard me say it, and I'll say it again, but we talk about the four Ds of self-storage demand, death, dislocation, downsize, and divorce. If those things are happening in your life, generally, you're consuming the asset class. And COVID for us, Pascal, was the perfect storm for all of those. People are moving all around the country. Unfortunately, people are passing away. They're working from home, so trying to figure out what to, how to create office space, put their stuff in storage. and so. You know, in the last two cycles, storage has done really well. And, you know, the last part of your question was, how do I think it's going to do? I think it depends on where you think we are right now. I think we're in the midst of a recession. We'll kind of find out probably 12 to 18 months from now. But storage just kind of bumps along. You don't have these huge swings up and down. It just kind of bumps along and historically has bumped along and slowly appreciated. So we think we're in a pretty good position based on economic climate today. but. You know, I, I think there's some some X factors and black swan events out there that you and I are not privy to that are are going to make it interesting for sure. Oh, totally. So one of the things I know from from conversations that we've had is that in large part, as an operator, there are dynamics which you can control, and there are dynamics which you cannot control. And so when you are thinking about or when you're evaluating maybe different partners to invest with, it's important to know the differences between the two. In my head, I'm thinking about the NOI discussion we had when we uh, were together in South Carolina and how interest rates affect, you know, the, the interest rates you, can't, you don't have any control over, whereas the NOI you do. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Think of commercial real estate just like any business. Our values are predicated on the profitability of, of the property. So self-storage is no different than apartments, industrial, you know, retail. We, our valuations are predicated on 
a function of net operating income, which is just gross revenues minus expenses before you pay your debt service. That's what NOI is. And it's NOI divided by a cap rate. And cap rate is this arbitrary measure of demand for your asset class. If there's a lot of money coming into an asset class and bidding up the price, cap rates compress. And all cap rate is, is a measure of what the deal would produce, what a property would produce if you bought it all cash. So you buy a million dollar property that's producing $100,000 of cash flow, that's a 10% cap rate. And right. is that before or after expenses? Is that like top line revenue or are we talking it's, net? It's net all expenses before debt service. Love it. So, so our job as an operator is to grow net operating income. That's the piece we can control, Pascal. And the deal that, that we walked through in South Carolina was a deal that we, we had a pretty significant expansion. If you remember... We actually bought an industrial building across the street from the storage facility and retrofitted it to climate-controlled units. And for us, that's where the NOI growth was, right? We built additional units. We successfully leased those up. So now there's more revenue coming to the, the P&L or the, you know, to the, the, the property. Minimal expense increase. So all that revenue falls to the bottom line. So that's our NOI growth. And as an operator, that's how you should judge us. Are we growing NOI? And in the last 10 years, Pascal, fortunately or unfortunately, there's been a lot of people who have grown value in their assets, but maybe not because they did a great job, because the market has taken them with it, right? The rising tide floats all boats. So the market's been great the last 10 years. It's made values go up across the board. Cap rates have compressed across many asset classes. And so... You know, that may or may not be a good indicator if you're a good operator. What I think about is the you, you mentioned the question and framed it in what we can control. We can control net operating income. And to some extent, I mean, there's some things that happen in markets, but generally, if we're growing NOI, well, then we're doing our job. And to your point around interest rates, right now, interest rates are high. So values have come back to us a little bit. There's less demand less money chasing these deals. So the costs, it, cap rates have expanded, meaning that there is less, essentially prices have come down a little bit. We can't control that. And we never will be able to. So the market's going to do what it's going to do. So as, a, as an investor, right? Like, let's say, you know, I've already made my allocation to, to self-storage at this point. But if I were to restart this process again, and let's say I had another 50K I, I wanted to to start looking at different operators, Reliant included, to, to evaluate. And I think the first thing, the most public number that you see when you look at these different funds is the IRR. Everyone touts their IRR. Maybe they tout the equity multiple. And, and what I'm picking up from this conversation is that those are maybe more vanity metrics. And, and I for sure know that operators can manipulate IRR in, in a bunch of different ways. And we, we can, we'll dive into that later. But you know, it sounds like what I should really be doing if I'm looking at maybe five or 10 different operators is saying, hey, can you show me the NOI growth of your last five deals? Is that like an appropriate... Is that, is that what I should be doing? It, it should certainly be a part of the conversation for, for undoubtedly, because that's, again, 
you know, you, you mentioned IRR, you can play around with those numbers. Equity multiple, you can't really play around with, right? You put in a hundred, if, if your multiple is a two, that means you put in a hundred grand, you got out 200 grand. You know, it, as long as you have that and the amount of time it took you to do it, you can't really play around with those numbers. So, you know, that's, that's a good indicator of performance. But the, the question I would have next is, okay, you, you had a two multiple, that's fantastic, congrats. What was the average NOI growth across that, those deals? And, you know, I think that's the piece that you need to look at to say, okay, NOI growth was X and the deal you're looking at today, what's your NOI growth projections? Because I'm a huge believer, Pascal, that it's team and track record, right? They're, they're great people. I want to know that the people I'm investing with are great humans first, because if you have bad people, it doesn't really matter what you're investing with. But the, the second part is I want to understand that you have a track record of doing what you are pitching me today that you've done in the past. And there's a pretty good bet you can do it in the future. And, you know, I think NOI growth is a good measurement of that. You can say, okay, well, historically, how much NOI have you grown? It's, you know, I'm making it up 30%. Great. What are you pitching me today? 16. Okay. Well, that, that, that makes sense. And if it's the opposite, if it's 30% and I'm pitching you 120%, well, there, <laughs> something's changed. Why, why can we do that now? And we didn't do it before. Right. Okay. So to, to rehash, so, you know, I, I look, I subscribe to a bunch of different lists. I find, you know, five, five self-storage companies that have roughly similar equity multiples in the same timeframes, two X over five years, let's, as an example. And then the next kind of, you know, other than verifying are these people that I actually want to work with, it's, okay, what is your track record in improving NOI? And just like seeing all of those metrics side by side, and then probably also looking at how they improved that NOI growth. Is that like a variable in there? Because I imagine some people look at facilities that the mom and pop owner wasn't charging appropriately. And that is mm -hmm. one way to grow NOI growth. But another way to force NOI growth would be, like you said, to add and expand units to uh, a property. Are there any other ways that you can improve NOI growth? I mean, for us in our world, the, the two biggest levers are expansion. That's the best one we got. And then what I would call ancillary income items, you know, things like U-Haul truck rental, tenant insurance, late fees, retail items, depending on the facility you're buying, they may have some of that, they may not. The last ancillary income item, and this is sort of a broader topic, is you mentioned mom and pop operators. And, and think of mom and pops as not bad. It, they, it has like a negative connotation. It isn't. But we think of it, guys and gals who own five facilities or less. Generally, there's a scale that you get as you grow that you can do other things that smaller operators can't. One of those things, Pascal, is we have a pricing algorithm tool where Literally, our pricing is adjusting daily and weekly based on what's happening in the market. So we're adjusting on the occupancy that we have at our facilities by unit and comparing that to what's happening in the marketplace. Generally, a mom and pop operator isn't going to do that. It's not going to happen. So what it allows us to do is squeeze more revenue with these short little ups and downs, ups and downs, where a mom and pop may say, hey, every six months, I'm going to change prices and maybe raise some rents. We're doing that almost daily. And it, it's just these little tweaks along the way to squeeze more juice out of the property. 
it's things like that that are our biggest levers in NOI. In other asset classes, there's there's other strategies, but but to your original question, you want to understand the how, and and just think logically about it. Like, okay, does that make sense? Can we continue to do that? And you know, Pascal, in the environment we're in right now, where we've seen rent growth for ten years, doing basically this in apartments, storage, everything. You know, if someone's, right. yeah, 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 yeah. If if someone right now is saying, "Hey, I think I can still get seven percent rent growth a year," that's that's an aggressive assumption. So I, I think you just need to understand what's the the meat and potatoes of where the NOI growth is coming from, and and is that a feasible assumption? Because the hard part is all of these things are made up, right? We're you know we're putting numbers into a spreadsheet and saying, "Yeah, we hope." that cap rates are going to be here six years from now. Well, we don't know. Nobody does. And same thing with rent rate growth. Like we're making assumptions, but it's all just hearsay and happenstance based on our experience. And I'll leave you with this. Like for the last 10 years, we've been wrong on our assumptions. We just happen to be wrong the right way. So everybody thinks we're really smart. Now, if if I could, Pascal, I would never project any returns for anything because it's almost impossible. You, your company has a focus on the Southeastern United States, hmm. Sunbelt States. How did you come to that conclusion? And, and have you thought about expanding into other, into the other geographies? I'd love to tell you that we're just really smart. And we made a projection 13 years ago and said, here's where everybody's going to come. But that is not truthful. Ostensibly, what happened is my partner, Todd, who started Reliant, his wife's family was in Georgia. So this is where he started. And so it geographically made sense to buy around him. And fortunately, the last 10 years, we've also had the demographic tailwinds that the Southeast have, has provided. Right. So we have 91 properties today across eight states. So Florida, Georgia, North South Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee one in Arkansas and one in Colorado, or I'm sorry, a small but growing portfolio out in Colorado. The second part of your question is, are we thinking about other states? Yes, but because we manage our own stuff, Pascal, it, it's gotta make sense. So typically if we go into a new state, it's hub and spoke. We're gonna buy one and then try to build around it. Like we bought our first property in Tennessee in 2019, I think, and now we have eight, right? So the, the goal is, buy and then build around it so we can share some of those management efficiencies at our sites because it's challenging when you just have a site out on an island for our operations team the whole kit caboodle right our market managers have to fly somewhere just to see a site it's just becomes very inefficient so not to say we won't ever go into any new states but but generally when our acquisitions team is looking we're trying to look at like a 2 hour window from wherever we have a particular facility unless there's a really compelling reason to, to expand outside of that. So something that you touched on is kind of efficiencies at scale, a larger size. And you've touched like, you know, you mentioned, Hey, you know, there are some mom and pop operators that, you know, if you're under five units, they just don't have certain systems in place. And just like you, you're, you're talking about, you kind of do this land and expand approach. What are other advantages and maybe even disadvantages like pros and cons of working with a large larger institutional management company like yours versus a smaller one 
and, and maybe you call yourself mid-tier. Maybe there's maybe there's the, the bigger REITs that are above that. How, how would you classify the differences between those? You mean as far as what capabilities we have? Well, you know, I, things I think about here are, look, if you're going to invest with an operator that has five or 10 facilities under management, they probably don't have a big enough team to have someone dedicated to hiring or dedicated to acquisitions because they're too small. And if if you're, you know, incredibly large, you have enough resources to to hire those kinds of people, but maybe the disadvantages are that you're paying more fees uh and that it's you're just not getting as high of a return. I, I would imagine. I'm just, you know, guessing here. Yep. I'm looking to see if you if you can give me any insight. Yeah, I mean Pascal, I would think of it like a risk spectrum. Right? So if you invest in public well, they're not the world's largest read anymore. They but public storage used to be the world's largest REIT for many, many years. And then number two and number four just merged. And now they are the number one extra space. So extra, let me take me back. Extra space storage is the world's largest REIT right now, right? Extra space has, I think they have close to 4,000 properties. So their balance sheet is much stronger than Reliance. There's a pretty good bet you're not going to lose money if you invest in extra space and it's liquid, right? It's a publicly traded stock, so you can come in and out of it. Great. Reliant, let's say is mid-tier. We have 91 properties. We're a small company in Roswell, Georgia, relative to extra space. We're a different risk, right? A little higher risk than, than extra space. Well, you're going to get a return premium for that risk, right? Historically, we've outperformed what the REITs have done. And then if you go one tier lower, you mentioned, hey, I'm, I'm a guy just starting out. I got five employees. Maybe we have 10 sites. Well, that's a different risk. You're not well capitalized, but that doesn't mean the returns aren't there. There's lots of guys doing small deals that are crushing it, but a different risk profile, riskier than reliant. So you should get, re- you should get rewarded for that risk. And, and I think that's how I think of it. There, there's efficiencies in operational things. But I think as an investor, you think about it as, okay, well, if I'm going to a guy who hasn't taken any deals full cycle, he's got five properties and is on his growth curve, well, then I should be compensated for that risk as an investor. Maybe it's in the promote structure. Maybe it's in the preferred return where I am guaranteed more return before you get it. So hopefully that's helpful. I I think just the day-to-day things, when you talk about efficiencies, Extra space will always be able to outspend us in digital marketing. Always. They're, they're going to have a better budget for their Google, you know, their Google AdWords and their pay-per-click. Like, we're never going to outspend them. So how we think about that is, well, let's be in markets where we can be a larger operator. You know, we're a big fish in a small pond where we can outspend the mom and pops. Right? It's, it's all just kind of coming down the line. So I think digital is one thing that really matters on, on the marketing side. What we're doing now is trying to understand how do we supplement technology for payroll to try to minimize our payroll costs. And that's something that I think will have an advantage over some of the mom and pops. And maybe the REITs have an advantage over us because they'll be able to build technology quicker. We feel like our advantage is in kind of that mid-tier is we're very nimble. You know, there's only basically three guys who are making a decision at Reliant if we're going to change something major. 
you know, at extra space, that's going to be a long process. And you got to get approval from the board and, you know, executive committee, blah, blah, blah. So we, we feel like some of our ability to move quickly in the market is that advantage. But I think when you think about efficiency and what that looks like, you think of it as an investor with risk and then some of the operational stuff as a, you know, another opportunity to gain some efficiencies. Got it. So overall, though, to rehash, it's just when you're investing, there's different there. You can invest with a small player and you should expect higher returns because they don't have as much infrastructure. They don't have as big of a balance sheet. They probably don't have as big of a track record. And as you go up the chain, you should expect your risk to, to decrease. But with that decrease in risk, you should also see a decrease in the returns that you should get in theory. Potentially. I mean, you're an investor, Pascal. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, I think one of the reasons that I invested with you guys is because first and foremost, like I like the asset class, like you mentioned, it's performed historically well. Two, I think that you guys are people that I like to work with. I've I've gotten to know Chris over a couple of years now. We're both in GoBundance. And I just, I mean, if you've noticed throughout this call, what I think what really drew me to Chris and his team is that every answer that he gives is like, it depends or, you know, and and he talks openly about how IRRs can be manipulated. And, you know, it's like, that's someone who I trust more with, like I just develop more trust with. And then I, thirdly, I think the big piece for me was, is the risk profile. It's like, yeah, I could invest in, in public REITs. I didn't want to do that because I didn't, I don't want to have the exposure or the volatility of the stock market. And I also wanted to work with an experienced operator that's had multiple deals go full cycle. And so that, that's, that's what drew me to you guys. And when I think about the risk return profile, it was like, yeah, this is an illiquid investment, but it's, it's with people I know I can trust in a, in a great sector that performs. And yeah, that, that, that's kind of how I made that decision. Yeah, makes sense. And, and I think, Pascal, everybody's portfolio is a little different, right? You think about the sleeves of capital you have as an investor and what the goal is for that sleeve of capital. And maybe there's a role for publicly traded equities, you know, REITs or otherwise. But, but I think, you know, you got to think about, hey, I have this bucket of cash. What do I want to do with it? We talked about it at the beginning. If I want pure cash flow, we're not a great op. There's better options today than us. Like you, you can go invest in some private credit funds that are really attractive. But if I'm an appreciation with minimal risk, you know, maybe storage is a good option. And within that storage sleeve, Reliant might be a good option or one of the publicly traded REITs. Like, yeah, I think it's just each investor has to have that thought process of what am I trying to do with this money? And then, you know, allocate appropriately. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. I really appreciated it. If anyone wants to go follow Chris or Reliant online, you can go look up Reliant Real Estate Management. We'll add both Chris, his, uh, a way you can follow him online and a way that you can access or view uh, all the deals that Reliant has in the show notes. So thank you again for, for joining us.